wonder, are you one of those people who like to read a few of the final pages long before you get to the end of a book, or maybe even before you buy it? I really could never understand that impulse. I love to let the story unfold, and when the ending comes, I can be surprised or satisfied. I could never see the point of starting with the ending. But with the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to make an exception, at least for these comments. For one thing, the sermon is not a story with a plot line, and for another, the entire sermon is something familiar to so many of us that we aren't spoiling a thing. In fact, in this case, as we come to a close with our study of the Sermon on the Mount, I think the ending has much to tell us about how to understand this final lesson and even the whole of the teachings found in these chapters. Matthew writes the ending this way. When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Let's take that apart a bit to remind ourselves of some basics. First of all, we are told that the crowds are astonished. Just as a reminder, there are perhaps two audiences for Jesus' teachings on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee. One audience would have been his close followers, those who were traveling with him and witnessing his words and actions from town to town, from person to person, day to day. The other audience would have been those who were fascinated by the rumors about Jesus, the stories of his fantastic healings and the numbers of people who were drawn to him. And this second group would be the crowds. But we have another clue about the identity of the crowds. Verse 29 assures us that Jesus was not like their scribes, meaning the crowds were Jewish, schooled by scribes who at the time of the New Testament would have been the scholars of the law, or more commonly, rabbis. Matthew seems to be making a point that Jesus had something of real value to offer his own people. The crowds, we are told, when all is said and done, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. Unlike the rabbis who quoted their own hallowed teachers and one another, Jesus usually offers a fresh take, his own take, that often came in the form of, but I say to you. And this comes from his deep relationship with his father, his I, his true self is wedded to the divine I am. What is this authority of Jesus, or what I would call his inner authority? what he possesses in himself and does not gain from outside influence. Father Ronald Rollheiser, a great teacher himself, wrote about the authority of Jesus in one of his columns, saying, what set Jesus' teaching apart? Its effect. He cured people and changed their lives in a way none of the other preachers and teachers of his time could. The word of God coming from his mouth simply affected things in a way that this same word coming from other mouths didn't. His words made sick people healthy, made sinners change their lives, and even brought some dead people back to life. Well, it occurs to me that the words of Jesus, like the words of God, the creator in Genesis 1, actually bring about the reality that is spoken. In Genesis, we read, let there be light, and there was light. Or let the earth bring forth vegetation, and it happens. Well, likewise, in the gospel, when Jesus says, be healed, the woman or man is restored to health. Be forgiven, and the person can begin anew. Be made clean, and the outcast can rejoin the community. 
The authority of Jesus was not given to him by someone else, but resided in him because he revealed God fully. God who is the author or the authority of life. Now, the only authority we possess as followers of Christ is that which comes from Christ himself. When our words and actions reveal Christ, we're tapping into that deep life of God that we share through the indwelling of Christ in us. In this way, we share that authority that Jesus embodied. I guess the question for me concerns how this authority of Jesus is revealed in his Sermon on the Mount, not just for those who were gathered by the sea about 2,000 years ago, but for us today. And that begins first with understanding. What was he teaching? In this week's lesson, we covered the material from Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, through chapter 7, verse 29. Now, I'd say his teachings in these verses concern a few key things that are vital to living as disciples. First, giving priority to God then exercising humility in our relationships with others, and then finally learning to trust that God is dependable. Let's begin with Jesus encouraging his followers to put God first. The first two short teachings from this week's lesson have something to say that we need to hear, both the teaching about the eye being the light of the body and serving God and not mammon encourage us to be single-minded in our devotion to God. Now, in a pre-scientific world that served as the backdrop for the Bible, the eye was thought to function in just the opposite way that we understand now. We see the eye as a receptor and reflector of light. But the ancients believed that the eye actually takes whatever is inside of the body and projects it out into the world. Now, by that logic, if a person is filled with light, Another way of saying filled with God, he or she will project that light into the world. It would only make sense then that it is impossible to divide one's loyalties or to see with two different eyes. Likewise, one's loyalties cannot be divided between mammon and God. Now, mammon is a word that captures whatever it is that tends to focus our attention on material things. It could be possessions, money, property, These things are not evil in themselves, but if we are single-heartedly devoted to God, how can we also spend most of our energy and time and desire on acquiring things? Does mammon, the acquisition of stuff, set our daily agenda or our big picture goals? If so, it's a sign that we're trying to divide our loyalty and we will not be successful. There has to be a certain detachment from property and possessions if we wish to be possessed by God. It's difficult, for example, to exhibit the generosity God shows to us if we are determined to feed our desires for material things. It's hard to give away what we worked so hard to acquire, but that's the kind of detachment that is being described here. Is it hard to be single-hearted or single-minded in our devotion to God? Well, I think if we're honest, we have to say yes. This is not an easy lesson, and it certainly is countercultural. And this is just what a disciple must struggle with. I'd say if we're not struggling, perhaps we are not awake to the conflicting interests that surround us. The second theme that I identified in this lesson is exercising humility in our relationships with others. 
There are three passages that seem to speak to this theme. There's the lesson on judging others at the start of chapter 7. There's the golden rule found in chapter 7, verse 12. And then not far after that is dealing with false prophets, and that's found in chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. So it begins, stop judging that you may not be judged. Well, now that's a pretty direct statement, a, a very clear directive. Stop judging. What is the meaning here? Aren't we supposed to be judicious in what we say and do? Don't we make judgments daily about right and wrong? Isn't it a good idea to be able to judge what is sinful or harmful and then steer clear of it? I'd answer yes to all these questions. And from the biblical evidence, I believe we are meant to do those things. Let me give you some examples. The book of Leviticus in chapter 19 admonishes God's people to reprove one another to avoid sinfulness. That's a theme that is expanded by Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, where he instructs his followers to discuss the wrongs between them and to call one another to repentance. Now, surely that implies that we are to judge between right and wrong. We could also offer examples from the prophets, from Amos to Zechariah, who constantly told God's people to hate evil and love good, again, asserting that it is essential to exercise some judgment. The Apostle Paul, in closing out his letter to the Romans, advises his listeners to be discerning and to avoid those who cause dissension, to be wise as to what is good and simple as to what is evil. And even here in the sermon, Jesus assumes that his followers will use good judgment in identifying false prophets who lead others astray. So exercising judgment and thinking critically are essential from discerning what is good and what is evil to assigning value to what we embrace and to what we avoid. What are we to make then of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? What could he mean by saying, stop judging? In the context of the sermon, the kind of judgment being condemned is the kind that is self-righteous, that places oneself above others and assigns some kind of ultimate value. Jesus is reminding us that humility and self-righteousness cannot exist side by side. Correcting the behavior of our children or even fellow Christians is only acceptable if it is meant to build up and not to tear down. If our correction is really a condemnation, a way of finding fault with others, then we have placed ourselves in a position of superiority, a position that in fact does not exist. Human beings cannot fully understand one another's motives. Sometimes we can't even understand our own. It's that basic flaw in human judgment that reminds us only God is the ultimate judge. Jesus' point is further made by wondering how it is that we can notice the minor flaws of others, that splinter or speck in the eye, while ignoring our own deeper flaws, the wooden beam that we miss. It's that sin of hypocrisy that further illustrates his teaching about judging others. I've long observed, having the opportunity to read the Bible on a very regular basis, that Jesus focuses on the sin of hypocrisy more than any other. It concerns him deeply that the scribes and Pharisees preach one thing and practice another. The displays of piety can become mere displays rather than authentic prayer, and that people honor God with their lips but not with their hearts. 
Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds his listeners and us that saying the right things is not enough. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. It disturbs Jesus greatly that followers who say they love God can still hate their neighbor. Jesus invites us to approach one another with humility, aware of our own inadequacies, seeking to build up the community rather than draw attention to ourselves or place ourselves in positions of superiority. Like the publican who enters the temple to pray and acknowledges that he is a sinner, or like the centurion who professes that he is not worthy for Jesus to enter his house, we are called to a certain honesty about ourselves and generosity about others. I can't help but think of a young woman I know who seems to understand this combination. She became a single mother, she struggles with alcoholism, and she has plenty of reason to pity herself. Instead, she lays out to God each morning the honest situation in which she finds herself, and then at the end of the day, she examines her interactions to find out where she might have been more generous with others. Her discipline in doing this has certainly served her well, but just as importantly, it has made her less judgmental of others. When we practice generosity of spirit, as well as material generosity, the rough edges of our lives get sanded down a bit, making way for us to discover more deeply that we cannot know what others carry within themselves. And now I come to the third theme that I've identified in this lesson, and that is learning to trust that God is dependable. One of the most poetic and encouraging portions of the Sermon on the Mount is found in chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. And it begins with, I think, what seems an impossible instruction. It says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Now, telling most of us not to worry is like telling us not to breathe or not to shiver when we're cold. It sometimes, maybe oftentimes, just seems beyond our capacity. When we have a diagnosis that requires extreme treatment and we don't know what to expect, or we encounter natural disasters that threaten our homes and our sense of security, or we watch our child leave home and enter a school across the country, these things happen every day all around us. And so we know about anxiety, another word for what we might call worry. Anxiety is usually a, a vague sense of unease rather than a specific fear. It can creep up on us, preoccupy our minds, and even become quite unsettling. But anxiety is a reminder that we cannot be in control of every aspect of our lives or our world. It's a reminder that we are powerless in some scenarios, and that in itself can be very unsettling. And then the passage goes on to describe God's care of the birds and the wildflowers, and we're drawn into a picture of hope and calm. But truth be told, not all birds or flowers fare so well in this world. And not all of us who pray fervently about our worries feel that sense of calm and care that we desire. Surely a population facing wildfires and sizable hurricanes and earthquakes still shudders with overwhelming grief at the loss of their homes and the danger to their lives and the long months ahead as life is rebuilt. How does a Bible passage about not worrying sound 
in their ears and in their hearts. Surely they also asked and sought and knocked, as we are called to do in another section of this sermon. One thing I know for sure, these verses are not describing some kind of never-fail formula. We are not meant to read these words as a set of directions that we must follow and then we'll get these results. Instead, we read them knowing that Jesus is inviting us into a deeper sense of trust, the kind that knows the struggle is real, but that even in the midst of life's storms and disappointments and real tragedy, he stands with us, and we can depend on that grace-filled accompaniment that God offers. Now, we know that to interpret Scripture well, we always consider the context within the overall passage. And in the Sermon on the Mount, these verses occur just after Jesus warns against trying to serve two masters, God and mammon. Perhaps Jesus is at least telling us that one source of our anxiety is trying to embrace them both, attempting to have it both ways. We're back to that lesson on being single-hearted in our devotion, of giving priority to God and the kingdom that is revealed in Jesus. If we do not or cannot acknowledge a conflict between the cultural values of gaining success and money and possessions and the Christian values of service and generosity and humility, perhaps we are setting ourselves up for a rather anxious life. Instead, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek that first, and I would add, seek that last as well. It's that priority that has the power not only to identify us as followers of Christ, but the power to change the world. And having said that, I want to state clearly that my own life as a disciple is a work in progress towards such single-heartedness. I haven't arrived at that full embrace just yet, but I pray God works with my desires and yours as well. Before we leave the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like to return to those final two verses where Matthew the Evangelist states, when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The astonishment of the crowds is understandable, but make no mistake, it is not the same as deciding to follow Jesus. To move from awe and astonishment and amazement to actual, real, trusting faith requires some next steps. It did for that original crowd, and it does for us. It requires continued openness to God's grace so that the spark of wonderment moves to the flame of commitment. It requires surrender to a vision for our world and our personal lives that is under control of our Creator. It requires the desire to see the world as God does, to address evil as God does, to stand with those in need as God does and to give up an agenda that fails to put God first. To move from astonishment to faith requires that we sit at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning, all the while refusing to simply sit and do nothing. The Sermon on the Mount is inviting us, indeed commanding us, to respond to the authority of Jesus, whose very life embodied the kingdom of God. My prayer is that this study disturbed you and that it disturbed me. That it disturbed us enough to continue down the road of conversion, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of our world.